female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He hit your face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Ooh, how's it going, everybody? Welcome back to a new episode of Man It Is, the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. Whether it's biting, scratchings, maulings, or clawings, we're here to talk about it. My name, of course, is Jimby, Papa Bear Jimby. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining us for yet another episode. Thank you for joining us last week for our Man Eater movie episode on Cocaine Bear. Um, it was nice to sit down and chat with Carl, uh, but I'm back in my little home studio by myself, solo dolo, as always. And today we are talking about, it's kind of a follow-up episode to a, to a, to an episode we did a few weeks ago. Um, a few weeks ago, I did an episode on the most deadly animal in each state of these 50 United States. And uh, I'm going to do a similar thing today, but with my home country, Australia. And I'm also going to tack uh, New Zealand on because one thing that New Zealanders hate is to be considered a state of Australia. Uh, and I'm in a pissing off New Zealander mood today. So that is what we're going to do. So we're going to count um, New Zealand and Aotearoa. We're going to look at that country and have a look what's deadly over there as well as everything in Australia. Before, first, before we do that, uh, we've got to talk about our grief of the week. So the grief of the week, an airing of grievances, uh, what is pissed us off, who has wronged us, what is grinding our gears, what's munching my box. Is that a saying? Is that a phrase? Like grinding my gears, munching my box? It sounds a little um, hot, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I think I might have. Oh, <laughs> I'm getting a little excited. I might have to think of something else for a second. Um, okay, grief of the week. What am, what's annoying me? I guess I have a headache. I don't know, guys. I'm in a pretty good mood, um, you know, lately. This week's been pretty good. I don't have anything that's really, uh, you know, munching my box. Uh, I, oh, well, you know, one thing that is a little upsetting is... um. So I, like many of you, have a favorite band, um, and it's a relatively new occurrence for me. I'm not a big music guy. Um, you know, gr- growing up, I was, I was lonely and ostracized for my musical tastes. But uh, you know, hitting my twenties, I think I found like you know a, a style of music I really like, and included in that is a, a band called Doors, D A W E S, not the Doors. Uh, as everyone who I say this to says, uh, no, Doors, uh, it's a great band, little indie rock band, um, they're very good, I, I really enjoy them, and, um, I've been a fan of theirs for, like, five or six years, and they recently announced that, um, their bass player uh, is leaving the band, and it's very sad, um, and, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a low bar for a grief, but I guess that's, that's where we're at, so my grief is with, uh, Wiley from Doors for um, leaving the band. Um, yeah, I guess it would be my unsolicited advice today as well as to go listen to some of that band because um yeah, great music, good 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 music. Um, I will, speaking of music, I, oh you know what? I'll, I'll plug it at the end. I got a little a little surprise for y'all, which you might know from listening to last episode. But um yeah, I got another show coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. What am I saying? Not a couple of weeks. I'm recording it tomorrow. Anyway, I'll, I'll talk about that later. Okay, grief over. Let's get into our main topic today, which is what are the deadliest animals in Australia? So 
when we think about deadly animals in Australia, our mind, we have a bad reputation worldwide, or a good reputation, I guess, depending on what metrics you're using. Australia is consistently considered like the most dangerous uh, country in the planet uh, in terms of its wildlife. And it's not entirely unwarranted, um, but I wouldn't say that it is uh, any more dangerous than uh, the United States or Canada or India in particular. Um, but because of the number of venomous animals that Australia does uh, have here, as well as we have, I think, the most animals that are endemic to Australia. And I believe that that means that, like, they they pop, they're, na- they're native here and they're native nowhere else. They don't go anywhere else. So, like, kangaroos and emus, for example, they're endemic animals. But if you're from America, like, the American bison is an endemic animal as well. It doesn't exist anywhere else outside that country or that continent. Um, so, yeah, Australia has a bit of a reputation due to the nature of its very unique wildlife and flora and fauna. Um, but it's not as, as bad as we might think. So I'm going to, uh, yeah, go through, a, we're going to go around the country. We're going to go on a little uh, road trip around the continent. Um, and we're going to talk about the deadliest animals in each state. So according to the most recent information from an online database of coronial cases, there were 254 reported and verified animal-related deaths in Australia in the 10 years between 2000 and 2010. Now, given our country's size and population and our reputation for hosting some of the world's most lethal snakes and spiders, and definitely some of the most toxic species like the cone snail, box jellyfish and blue ring octopus, this isn't necessarily surprising. Um, Not to mention, we also have many uh, deadly animals, including sharks and saltwater crocodiles, in our waters. Uh, We even have a plant that, uh, while not lethal, uh, has a sting so painful that originally um, scientists wanted to use it in biological warfare, um, but I believe that they decided it would be too cruel to do that. Uh, We have a lot of plants here that are actually so painful. I've myself been stung by a stinging nettle a couple of times. I remember when we, I was at Air Force Cadets, I was in an Air Force, I was an Air Force Cadet, confession time and um we were playing a game of like red light green light in the bush which is so much fucking fun uh but i like ran behind a tree and jumped down and i sat on some stinging nettle and my balls went very red and uh yeah it was not a good day for the for the field commander to have to look at some kids balls and (laughs) determine whether or not they needed to airlift me out um unless he liked looking at kids balls in which case it was a great day they were probably more pink than he wanted but um what are, we, what are we talking about? Oh yeah, Australia. So, um, horror stories of animal attacks in Australia circulate throughout the world, um, and they've given our country a pretty frightening reputation. Um, however, the creatures that truly endanger human lives are uh, not as scary as you might think. So, the National Coronial in- uh, Information System, or NCIS, which is the less cool version of the NCIS, um, issued its most current analysis on the trends and patterns surrounding animal-related fertilities in Australia, spanning the first decade of the century in 2011. So the most deadly animals in Australia were horses, cows, and dogs, according, accounting for 137 of the 254 verified and reported animal-related deaths in that 10-year period. So similar to the United States, uh, and unsurprisingly, if you follow this show, dogs, Horses and cows are the most deadly animals in Australia if you are counting by the number of people killed. It won't surprise you. This is because of our uh, proximity to these animals. Um, what will surprise you is that in Australia, the most deadly animal isn't, isn't dogs, 
like it is in the US. It actually is horses. So horses, including ponies and donkeys, were the most deadly animal in Australia, accounting for 77 deaths in the last 10 years, the majority of which were caused by falls. So this is, it's not even the, really the, the animal's fault, it's just people climbing on them and falling off. Um, cows, including bulls and cattle, were responsible for 33 deaths, 16 of which were caused by motor vehicle accidents, and the remainder by crushing, piercing, or unknown causes. So I think that motor vehicle accidents refers to people who um, crash their car or their four-wheeler into a cow and die. Uh, you know, a lot of these deaths aren't really the fault of the animal at all. The bulk of the 27 deaths caused by the third most killer dogs were from assaults, with the majority of these dogs, uh, with the deaths happening in children under the age of four and the elderly. That is very consistent with uh, the series we did on the dog attacks in America, as well as the uh, trip around the United States we did a few weeks ago, where we looked at the deadliest animals there. No, dogs, horses, and cows. Not the most interesting of animals to die from, but they are the most likely ones that you will get killed by. Um, now, following that uh, is the national symbol of Australia, the kangaroo. Kangaroos have indirectly or directly killed 18 Australians between 2000 and 2010, mainly due to automobile accidents. So if you uh, are... I'm trying to um, frame this in an American mindset. If you're, if you're from uh, any state in, Australia, in America where... Um, deers are prevalent and, you know, deers run out on the road. Kangaroos are like that, but they're worse. Kangaroos uh, just hop out into the middle of the road um, and, yeah, they will wreck your car, basically. Um, so, yeah, unsurprising that, that that's true. Kangaroos also can be quite... Um, dangerous they can attack people uh and they are you know you've probably seen the videos of them you know boxing um yeah they've, they've got really long claws really powerful legs if you are a weak person uh it is not outside the realm of possibility that a kangaroo could take you down um at the seventh and eighth positions of the list uh, we find infamous snakes and crocodiles followed by emus which caused five deaths all of which were caused indirectly by motor vehicle accidents Fish, sheep, goats, camels, cats, and jellyfish were all fatal, resulting in 39 deaths. About three quarters of the deceased were men, and the majority of them died on public highways, in their homes, or on farms. So in case you haven't worked it out yet, what our perception of our risk of Australian animals is, is way out of tune in the reality of what you are most likely to die from. Um, What's scarier, surfing near a river mouth at dawn or visiting a friend's dairy farm? That's a question you have to ask yourself. You would probably think, oh, well, surfing at a river mouth at dawn, I'm going to get eaten by some fucking horrific lake monster. Um, but no, you know, visiting a dairy farm, you might get killed by a goat. Um, anyway, our perceptions of the probability of an event has been shown to depend on its availability. How easy we are able to bring such events to mind, explains Professor John Dunn at the University of Adelaide School of Psychology. Events appear on the news and or are talked about because they are noteworthy, unusual, or dramatic. As a result, these kinds of events are more available and hence we overestimate their probability to occur, he says. John Dunn points to a 1978 study in which participants were asked to predict the likelihood of dying from certain causes. The authors were able to show that the subjects over and over again underestimated certain risks that could be predicted based on how often those causes of death appeared in the local news stories. If availability was related to the actual frequency of the occurrence of the event, then we would be well calibrated. That is, our judgments of the probability of an event would coincide with their actual probability, says Dr. Dunn. 
While the animals we mentioned are the most prolific killers in Australia, it is worth taking a closer look at some particularly nasty creatures. I'm going to start with my home state, New South Wales. So, horses, cattle, dogs. Uh, one thing I will say about all the states in Australia is that the deadly animals, including sharks and crocodile, a lot of those animals pop up in more than one state. So it's not like, um, I'm trying to think of an example in, in America, it's not like um, alligators, right? Alligators probably only, only appear in, I would venture to say, two or three states in America, probably like Florida, of course, maybe um, South Carolina, North Carolina, potentially, on that sort of lower east coast of, uh, of the U.S., um, Different to that in Australia, like kangaroos are everywhere, um, crocodiles are only north, but the sh you know the sharks that we find dangerous, they're in the waters all over the place. So a lot of these animals, including the snakes and the spiders, will be found all over the place. What I've done is I've gone to each state and I've found like their most notorious killer. It doesn't necessarily mean that they don't live in other places, but it does mean that they are most notorious there. So starting in New South Wales, the animal that I decided to focus on um, is the Sydney funnel web spider. So it's probably the most notorious of all of our spiders. The Sydney funnel web has a fearsome reputation. Most of this is deserved, but some of it is exaggerated. Now, before I go on, I want to tell a personal story. Um, my grandfather, um, he was bitten by a uh, funnel web spider in our hometown of Newcastle. Newcastle is about a two-hour drive from Sydney, um, but the funnel web spider has actually uh, increased its its range uh, over the last hundred years. It used to be very locali localized in Sydney, um, but they are found in Newcastle. They are found in the Central Coast. They have even been found up north, getting up to Queensland. I believe there have been a couple cases of these spiders being found in Queensland as well, potentially from hitching a ride on uh, cargo freights on the roads or something like that. Um, so the Sydney funnel web spider Oh, I didn't get to tell my story. So my granddad, um, my grandfather, I heard this story when I was little. When he was younger, he was digging in the garden and he felt like some shooting pain in his hand and he wasn't sure what it was. He thought he just like pulled a muscle or he'd done something weird with his hand as he was digging. Um, but as the day went on, he noticed that like the meat in between his thumb and his index finger was just like puffing up to, a, to a, a, an alarming degree. So he went back into the garden and they found in the hole that he was digging, uh, yeah, massive funnel web spider. Uh, so my grandfather, while under the effects of this really um, painful poison, uh, scooped it up in a jar, took it, drove himself to the hospital and uh, received anti-venom for it. And he uh, thankfully survived with no no uh, no permanent um, side effects. But the doctors at the time, and this probably around 1970, 1980 maybe, um, he... They said to him, like, that is the biggest Sydney funnel web spider that we've ever seen. Um, we think it might be the biggest one on record. Now, it's probably been beaten since then, but that's been a little bit of a source of pride for my family, is that uh, my grandfather survived a bite from the biggest funnel web spider that they'd ever found at that point. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about the Sydney funnel web spider. It is a shiny dark brown to black spider with finger-like spinnerets, aka silk spinning organs, at the end of their abdomen. Males have a large mating spur projecting from the middle of their second pair of legs. If threatened, Sydney funnel webs show aggressive behavior, rearing up and displaying their impressive fangs. The Sydney funnel web spider occurs in New South Wales from Newcastle to Nowra and west to Lithgow. They especially favour the forested upland areas surrounding the lower, more open country of the central Cumberland Basin. This includes the Hornsby Plateau to the north, the foothills of the Blue Mountains to the west, and the Wanora Plateau to the south. 
Funnelweb occurrences is low in much of the central west and Sydney, but also the sandy parts of the coast uh, of the eastern suburbs and Botany Bay area. They do better in areas of sandy clay, shale, or uh, basalic soils that can retain moisture more effectively. Funnelwebs bury in sheltered sites under logs and rocks where they can find cool and humid climates. Funnelwebs rush out of their burrow when potential prey such as beetles, cockroaches, small lizards, or snails walk across silken trip lines that the spider has placed throughout the burrow. They then return to their burrow to eat their meal. Male Sydney funnelweb spiders have a habit of wandering into backyards and falling into suburban swimming pools where they can survive for many hours. They also sometimes enter and become trapped in houses. Again, it is true that Sydney funnelwebs have one of the most toxic venoms to humans of any spider. However, it is not true that all funnelweb bites are life-threatening. The venom of the juvenile and female Sydney funnelweb spiders is much less toxic nor are they able to jump onto or chase people or live in houses. This is an urban myth. Now, that contradicts something that this just said, that apparently they can get trapped in houses, but they do not live long in there. Um, dry daytime surface conditions will dehydrate funnelweb spiders and also expose them to birds and lizards. This is why males have spent the night in search of a female. Uh, they seem to seek cover at dawn. This can be uh, any suitable hideaway that is dark, moist, or cool, like a cavity under a rock, or even a shoe left at an in an outdoor area. Um, in Australia, even in metropolitan areas, I think I've talked about this before, we are taught from a very early age, if you leave your shoes outside, you have to tap them upside down a couple times just to make sure there's no spiders or snakes inside them. Um, maybe this kind of shit does contribute to our reputation as a place full of venomous creatures, but it is not worth the risk. I cannot imagine um, starting my day getting bitten on the fucking foot by a funnel web. A number of other spiders are often mistaken as funnel webs, including mouse spiders, trapdoor spiders, and even the black horse spider. Funnel web bites are incredibly dangerous, and first aid should be given immediately using the pressure bandage immobilization technique, as for a snake bite, and the victim taken to hospital and given antivenom if necessary, like what happened to my grandfather. The venom has a neurotoxin component that attacks the human nervous system, and in the worst cases can result in death. However, there have been no fatalities since the introduction of antivenom. That does, of course, imply that before the introduction of antivenom, there were uh, fatalities. Yeah. So yeah, the funnel web spider probably our second most um, famous spider in Australia after the redback spider um, and if you don't know the redback spider it's essentially an Australian version of the black widow spider yeah um, it's a terrifying looking spider it's probably I can't imagine a scarier looking spider if you haven't seen what a funnel web looks like google it um, when they stand back in their striking position um, it's very intimidating and they have like a like a red to orange to brown um, flaring color underneath where their fangs are it is it is quite intimidating and quite scary uh so yeah of all the spiders i would want to run into in australia that is the one i would least want to see um we're going to move down south now we're going to go to the great state of victoria and the animal we're going to look at in victoria occurs in much of australia um but it does have quite a significant uh threat to victorians we're looking at the red belly black snake it's probably one of our most famous snakes this beautiful serpent shares our love of sunshine and water and is a familiar sight to many outdoor adventurers in eastern australia Attitudes towards these largely inoffensive snakes are slowly changing, however, they are still often seen as dangerous menaces and unjustly persecuted. A medium-sized snake with a moderate to robust build and head barely distinct from the neck, dorsal head and body color is uniform black except for the snout, which is often pale brown. 
The lowest lateral scale rows and the outer edge of the ventral scales are a bright crimson, fading to a duller red, orange, or pink in the middle of the belly. In the north of the range of the ventral color may be gray, uh, sorry, may be grayish pink to white. The underside of the tail is black. Body scales are smooth and glossy, eyes are medium sized and shadowed by an obvious brow ridge. The iris is very dark and the pupil round. So they are beautiful snakes if you have ever seen one. If you haven't, definitely give it a look on Google. Uh, they are quite striking snakes. Um, the animal, uh, the mid-body scales in 17 rows. Ventral, 170 to 215. Anal scale divided. Anterior subcaudal single posterior divided. I don't know what any of that means, but yeah. Um, this animal may be confused with the related blue-bellied or spotted black snake. Uh, the small-eyed snake and the copperhead australis. This species is usually associated with moist habitats, primarily streams, swamps, and lagoons, although they may be found well away from such areas, within forests, woodlands, and grasslands. They also inhabit, dis sorry, they also inhabit disturbed areas and rural, rural properties, and are often encountered around drainage canals and farm dams. The snakes shelter in thick grass clumps, logs, mammal burrows and drays, and under large rocks. Individual snakes appear to maintain a number of preferred shelter sites within their home range. Red-bellied black snakes uh, occur disjunctly in northern and central Queensland and more con uh, continuously from southeastern Queensland through New South Wales and Victoria. Another distinct population occurs in the south end of uh, Mount Lofty Ranges in South Australia. The species does not occur on Kangaroo Island, despite assertions to the contrary. Red-bellied black snakes are one of the most frequently encountered snakes on the east coast of Australia and are responsible for a number of bites each year. They are a shy snake and will generally only deliver a serious bite under severe molestation. That's quite a... Um, that's how I would describe my time at my Catholic primary school. Severe molestation. Another pedophile priest joke. I'm on that a lot this week. Um, <laughs> um, what are we up to? When approached in the wild, a red-bellied black snake will often freeze to avoid detection, and people may unknowingly get quite close before registering the snake's presence. If approached too closely, the snake will usually try to flee towards the nearest retreat, which, if located behind the observer, may give the impression the snake is launching an attack. If unable to escape, the snake will rear up with its head and forebody held off but parallel to the ground, spread its neck and hiss loudly, and it may even make mock strikes with a closed mouth. Some individuals will lay low and slowly undulate their tail in a fashion similar to many lizards, presumably to draw attention away from their vulnerable head. Further harassment will cause the snake to lash out and deliver a rapid but often clumsy bite, and sometimes they may hang on and chew savagely. The venom has predominantly anticoagulant and myotoxic effects, and symptoms of anti-venom uh, envenomation include bleeding and or swelling at the bite area, nausea, vomiting, headache, abdominal pain, diarrhea, sweating, local or general muscle pain and weakness, and red-brown urine due to myoglobin being released from damaged muscle tissue. So it is no, by no means the deadliest snake in Australia, but because of its proximity and its uh, frequency in coming in contact with humans, and I guess its large population, uh, it, it is quite well known in Australia. It's a beautiful snake. Uh, uh, this, I guess it's got a similar color pattern to the um, to the funnel web spider. We are going to move slightly west now. We're going to South Australia, a beautiful state which I've never been to. South Australia. 
Now, South Australia has many deadly animals. Um, the one I want to focus on is one we've covered on the show before. We're going to talk about the great white shark. Now, the great white shark occurs in waters all around Australia, and South Australia is not necessarily the state that has the most great white shark attacks. I believe that that occurs in New South Wales. However, the reason I'm focusing on the shark in South, uh, South Australia is because it has a very... Uh, concentrated place where these attacks happen. Ironically, or is it ironic? It's appropriately named the Great Australian Bite. So if you look at a map of Australia, if you go to South Australia, there is a little chunk, a little chip taken out of it. We call that the Great Australian Bite, and it is a very famous place that shark attacks can occur in Australia. So the great white shark is one of the most famous and feared species of sharks. It's one of the few species of sharks that regularly attacks humans. The white shark has a torpedo-shaped body, a pointed snout, and large pectoral and first dorsal fins. It has a lunate tail, black eyes, and large serrated teeth. It is grey or bronze above and white below. The white shark is a powerful predator, which provokes fear in many people. However, this may not be entirely warranted. Scientists are only recently building up knowledge on the biology, movements, and vulnerability of this species. The Australian shark-related database has recorded that between 1791 and April of 2018, there were 237 fatal shark attacks in Australia. In the two years of 2020 and 2021, there were only 11 fatal shark attacks, a few of these occurring in South Australia. Um, I didn't put a lot of information about the great white shark here because we've heard about it before. Um, if you want to learn more about the Great White Shark, I reckon you can go and listen to a previous episode on the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks, um, or you could just watch Jaws. Um, yeah, they're, they're scary animals. Um, they do attack people a lot um, in the beaches in uh, Eastern Australia and Western Australia. Um, not necessarily, I don't think so much up in the Northern Territory, but uh, yeah, South Australia, don't go swimming at the Great Australian Bite. I think the reason that there are so many sharks there is there's quite a large sea lion population uh, at certain points of the year, which causes feeding frames. Okay, so we're going to go south again to um, the biggest off-land state, well, the only, I guess, off-land state in Australia. We're looking at Tasmania, a state that I realize that a lot of people outside of this country probably are not super um, familiar with. Um, so the animal I've chosen to look at, it shares its namesake. Um, it's not the Tasmanian tiger, because that's extinct. We are going to look at the Tasmanian devil. Now, I will say that the t Tasmanian devil um, is not a huge threat to humans. Um, but Tasmanian doesn't really have anything uh, outside the ordinary that is dangerous to you. The regular spiders and snakes. Um, but I wanted to look at the Tasmanian devil because we've never really had a chance to talk about it before. Um, they can attack people, but more often than not, they are the victim of, of, uh, of violence from humans. So I've got some information here. So, at Lake Nietzsche in western New South Wales in 1970, a male human skeleton wearing a necklace of 178 teeth from 49 different Tasmanian devils was found. The skeleton is estimated to be 7,000 years old, and the necklace is believed to be much older than the skeleton. Archaeologist Josephine Flood believes the devil was hunted for its teeth, and this contributed to its extinction on mainland Australia. Owen and Pemberton note that few such necklaces have ever been found. Middens that contain devil bones are rare. Two notable exception, uh, examples are Devil's Lair in southwestern parts of Western Australia and Tower Hill in Victoria. In Tasmania, local indigenous Australians and devils sheltered in the same caves. Tasmanian Aboriginal names for the devil recorded by Europeans include, include Taraba, Poinara, Palumira. Variations also exist, including Taraba and Puniria. 
It is a common belief that Tasmanian devils will attack and eat humans. Now, while they are known to eat dead bodies, there are prevalent myths that they will eat living humans who also wander into the bush. Despite these outdated beliefs and exaggerations regarding their disposition, many, although not all, devils will still remain still when in the presence of a human. Some will also shake nervously. They can bite and scratch out of fear when held by a human, but a firm grip will not cause them will, sorry, will cause them to remain still. Although they can be tamed, they are asocial and are not considered appropriate as pets. They have an unpleasant odor and neither demonstrate nor respond to affection. <laughs> Sounds like my ex-girlfriend. That's mean and not true. I have lovely ex-girlfriends. It just, it just didn't work out, okay? There's no animosity, at least not on my end. Until recently, the Tasmanian Devil was not studied much by academics or naturalists. At the start of the 20th century, Hobart Zoo operator Mary Roberts, who was not a trained scientist, was credited for changing people's attitudes and encouraging scientific interest in native animals such as the Devil, that were seen as fearsome or abhorrent. And the human perception of the animal has changed since. Theodore Thompson Flynn was the first professor of biology in Tasmania and carried out some research during the period around World War I. In the mid-1960s, Professor Goulier assembled a team of researchers and started a decade of systematic fieldwork on the Tasmanian Devil. This is seen as the start of modern scientific study of the animal. However, the Devil was still negatively depicted, including in tourism material. The first doctorate awarded for research to the Devil came in 1991. So, a little-known fact about Tasmanian Devils, and I'm realizing that most people outside of Australia, they're most familiar with this would be probably the Looney Tunes character, which does not give you a very good um, depiction of the animal at all. Tasmanian Devils, um, they're, um, I think they're endangered, critically endangered, perhaps. Um, uh, Habitat loss, obviously part of it. Hunting was part of it too. But unfortunately, um, cancer has actually spread through these animals quite a lot. A lot of these um, Tasmanian devils in the wild, in fact, most, I believe, have facial cancer. They have tumors on their face um, that, are, that are killing that population off, which it is quite sad. Um, the Tasmanian devil is quite a cute animal. If you've ever had a chance to see one at a zoo, they're, they're quite cute. They do stink. They do smell very unpleasant. And their scream, their howl, is, is quite off-putting as well. So that probably contributes to their less-than-stellar um, reputation in the, in, the, in the general public. However, they are by no means close to being the most deadly animals in Australia. I'm going to talk about one of those animals that is potentially one of the most deadly when we go all the way west to Western Australia. The biggest state in Australia, I think it's one of the biggest um, states in the world. I think it might be the third biggest state. Um, the tiger snake is what we're going to look at. So most Australians know of tiger snakes and are aware of their fearsome reputation, though few people will ever actually encounter one. Unfortunately, this species is much maligned because of its aggressive nature and toxic venom. However, the tiger shake snake sh the tiger shake that's a great name for a milkshake. The tiger snake should be recognized as a great survivor, superbly adapted to some of the most inhospitable environments in Australia. Their common name refers to the prominent yellow and black crossbands typical of some populations of tiger snakes. However, not all of them have this pattern. The most commonly seen form is a dark olive brown to blackish brown with off-white to yellowish cross bands that can vary in thickness. Entirely patternless individuals may occur in banded populations and these types uh, and these almost entirely un let me let me take that again. Uh, the most commonly seen form is dark olive brown to blackish brown with off-white to yellow cross bands that can vary in thickness. Entirely patternless individuals may occur in banded populations, and these types of ranges in color from yellowish brown to black. 
Some populations consist of almost entirely unbanded individuals, example, those of the central highlands and southwest of Tasmania. Melanism, dark body coloration, is most strongly developed in populations exposed to highly variable weather and conditions uh, and cool ex extremes such as those experienced at higher altitudes or on offshore islands. The dark coloration is an adaptation that allows those snakes to absorb heat at a faster rate during short periods of time. The head is moderately wide and deep and only slightly distinct from the robust muscular body. The, the neck and upper body can be flat, uh, flattened to a considerable degree when performing a threat display, exposing the black skin between the relatively large semi-glossy scales. What is wrong with me today? The snake's large size, often aggressive defense and toxic venom make it extremely dangerous to humans, although generally shy and preferring to escape over a conflict. A cornered tiger snake will put on an impressive threat display by holding its forebody in a tense, loose curve with the head slightly raised and pointed at the offender. It will hiss loudly as it inflates and deflates its body, and if provoked further will lash out and bite forcefully. The venom of the tiger snake is strongly neurotoxic and coagulant, and anyone suspected of being bitten should seek medical attention immediately. We're going to move back up north now. We're going to talk about uh, a place that's not actually a state of Australia. It's a territory, although I cannot for the life of me figure out why it is not a state. And it never has been a state. And hopefully one day it will. We're talking about the Northern Territory. Um, now, of all the states in Australia, when I think of vicious wildlife, the Northern Territory seems to be the most inhospitable place for humans. But we've managed it. Indigenous populations are still, um, you know, very successful in the Northern Territory. Um, I believe some indigenous populations exist uh pretty similar to how they were before colonialization. Of course, a lot of communities were not as lucky and are impacted by colonialization and, and live in our cities such as Darwin and Alice Springs. But we're going to talk about one of the most ferocious killers in Australia. We're talking about the saltwater crocodile. Now, the saltwater crocodile does occur in other places, including Queensland. Famously, Bob Catter said that uh, a Queenslander gets ripped apart by a saltwater crocodile every, every three weeks or something like that. Um, but the Northern Territory is where a lot of these attacks do happen. So yeah, we have talked about the saltwater crocodile on the, on, uh, the show before. But the saltwater crocodile, I think, is, is still probably one of my most feared animals. I can't think of many animals I'd rather um, avoid than a saltwater crocodile. The Australian saltwater crocodile has a large head and ridges stretching from each eye along the center of the animal's snout. Its body is covered with oval scales, while the scutes are much smaller than these than other reptiles. Juveniles are identified by pale yellow coloration, as well as black-colored patches and markings on their tails and bodies. Usually, they retain this coloration for several years until they become adults. Meanwhile, the body of adult crocodiles is darker, displaying a lighter tan with gray spots. The ventral part is covered with white or yellow, and the grey tail has stripes. The lower side of their body is covered with bands which do not reach their belly. The area of their distribution covers a vast territory. They inhabit the islands of Indonesia and New Guinea, as well as the northern coasts of Australia, including uh, the Northern Territory and Queensland. The crocodiles also occur in the shores of, South, of, of Sri Lanka and eastern India, and they live in the estuaries of Southeast Asia, Central Vietnam. Saltwater crocodiles can also be found in Borneo, the Philippines, Palu, Vanuatu, and the Solomon Islands. During the dry season, they most frequently occur downstream at estuaries, sometimes living in the open sea. Which is a fucking... I, I, whenever I hear that, it terrifies me more. I, I forget that these animals live in the goddamn ocean. 
With the approaching of the wet season, they moved to freshwater bodies inhabiting swamps and rivers. From 2005 to 2014, 15 people were killed by crocodile attacks in the Northern Territory. Since 2014, there have only been two fatal attacks, both in 2018. So yeah, uh, pretty terrifying animal. And one of the uh, many in the movies we're going to look at next is actually called Rogue. It's an Australian horror movie about a rogue uh, saltwater crocodile. So uh, stay tuned for that one. But yeah, saltwater crocodile, you're probably familiar. You might not be as familiar with our next animal. So I'm doing Queensland now. This is the last state on our map. Um, I'm not doing the Australian Capital Territory, by the way, because that is just a really small region, which basically just exists within New South Wales, um, and there's nothing remarkable in terms of animal life there. Um, but yeah, we are going to talk about Queensland now. Queensland, of course, the home of the Great Barrier Reef. Many venomous creatures uh, live in Queensland, but the one we're going to focus on is the box jellyfish. Although unspecified species of box jellyfish have been called in newspapers the world's most venomous creature and the deadliest creature in the sea, only a few species of the class have been confirmed to be involved in human deaths. Some species are not harmful to humans, possibly delivering a sting that is no more pe than painful. Although the notoriously dangerous species of box jellyfish are largely restricted to the tropical Indo-Pacific region, various species of box jellyfish can be found widely in tropical and subtropical oceans, including the Atlantic Ocean and the East Pacific Ocean, with species as far north as California, the Mediterranean Sea, and Japan, and as far south as Africa. New Zealand is also a place where these can uh, occur. There are three known species in Hawaiian waters, all from the genus Carabidia, C. Alata, C. Rastoni, and C. Civicsklitski. <laughs> Within these tropical and subtropical environments, box jellyfish tend to reside closer to shore. They have been spotted in nearshore habitats such as mangroves, coral reefs, kelp forests, and sandy beaches. In Australia, Hugo Flecker, who worked on various venomous animal species and poisonous plants, was concerned at the unexpected deaths, unexplained deaths of swimmers. He identified the cause was the box jellyfish. In 1945, he described another jellyfish envenoming, which he named Irukanji syndrome, later identified as caused by the box jellyfish Karukia barnesi. In Australia, fatalities are most often caused by the largest species of class jellyfish, Chironex fleckery. I bad at these uh, Latin names, which is certainly one of the world's most venomous creatures. After severe uh, <laughs> Chironex fleckery stings, I'm just going to call it box jellyfish stings, cardiac arrest can occur quickly within two minutes. In Australia, this particular box jellyfish species has caused at least 79 deaths since they were first reported in 1883. But even in this species, the most encounters appear to be the result of mild envenoming. While most deaths in Australia have been in children, including a 14-year-old who died in February of 2022, which is linked to their smaller body mass, in February 2021, a 17-year-old boy died about 10 days after being stung while swimming at a beach in Queensland's Cape York. The previous fatality was in 2007. At least two people in Australia have died uh, due to thumbnail-sized box jellyfish. People stung by these may never uh, may suffer severe physical and psychological symptoms, as well as Irukandji syndrome. Nevertheless, most victims do survive, and out of 62 people treated for box jellyfish envenomation in Australia in 1996, almost half of those discharged home with few or no symptoms after six hours, and only two remained hospitalized after approximately a day or so where they were stung. Preventative measures in Australia, including nets deployed on beaches to keep jellyfish out, and jugs of vinegar placed along swimming beaches, can be used for rapid first aid. 
And that is all of Australia's um, states and territories, apart from the ACT, that we've covered. A bunch of deadly animals, of course. Now, I decided that I was going to include New Zealand on here, because New Zealand certainly doesn't have enough dangerous animals to make its own episode. Uh, so we're looking at uh, New Zealand, or Aotearoa, whatever you prefer to call it. Now, when I thought about this, I actually thought to myself, shit, I actually don't know any dangerous animals that live in New Zealand. Um... I know that they can have leopard seal uh, populations, which are dangerous animals, which we've covered on the show before. Uh, I know that they have an ex- they had an extinct uh, eagle species that actually could attack humans, but I was actually, you know, I, and I don't know what their snake and, and spider situation is like over there either. So when I looked into it, it seems that the most dangerous or feared animal in New Zealand is the capito spider. Um, so the capito spider is the sole native venomous species of spider living in New Zealand. It's small but mighty, with a bite that can pack a serious punch. Named after the Maori ro- word katipo, uh, which translates to night stinger, um, this spider has gained an almost mythical status in New Zealand, where it's notorious but rarely seen and is so fiercely protected due to its rapidly declining population, it's illegal to catch or deliberately kill one. With just a few thousand katipo left in roughly 50 areas of the North Island and 8 in the South Island, these dangerous little creatures are now rarer than the kiwi. Their closest relative, the Australian redback spider, makes a nuisance of itself by living uh, in close proximity to human. Capitos keep to themselves on the seashore, living in driftwood, grass, and discarded bottles and cans on the sand dunes. Which is, of course, one reason why keeping your shoes on while you're going through the beach is a great idea. And if you're going to leave your clothes and towels somewhere when you swim, make sure you uh, shake them out. It is thought that this unique and specialized habitat is the reason the Katipo's catastrophic decline in recent decades. Its sand dunes have been shaped and reshaped for decades by agriculture, forestry, and urban development. And invasive grasses and recreational horse riding and biking haven't helped this spider either. It is a concern because the Katipo is a real force for nature, and to see it endangered is to see a real New Zealand icon under threat. The females are quite larger than male uh, redback females, but they've both got similar markings. So there you go, guys. That is our list. That is our main part of our episode today. Uh, All the dangerous animals, well, not all of the dangerous animals, a lot of the dangerous animals in Australia and New Zealand, Aotearoa. We're going to take a break now. We're going to hear some messages, perhaps, maybe just hear a little bit of the music, and we'll be back very shortly. And we are back, guys. You know what time it is. It is time for the scratch of the day. The Scratch of the Day segment, of course, where we look at news articles that have happened in the uh, past week regarding to human and animal conflicts or animal attacks, and we go through them. I've got three stories for you today. As always, we do not, uh, I do not read these stories ahead of time. I will wait uh, till the recording the episode and read them new with you. I burped in the middle of that sentence, but we're going to keep going. Our first story today from the Daily Mail Australia, so not the most reputable fucking um, place ever, but interestingly enough, um, Matak Attack, Matak, Macaque Attack, Matak Attack, it's a Macaque Attack. A Chinese martial artist gets into a punch-up with some monkeys after trying to pet a wild animal. Okay, alright, this sounds good, let's have a look. 
This is the moment a kung fu expert squares up with a fang-bearing monkey for what looks like some serious guerrilla warfare. I love when these journalists just give up and they just put all these puns in. That man, identified as free fighter Mr. Xi, took on a feisty Tibetan macaque during a visit to Mount Aimei in southwestern China's Sichuan province. Footage of their scrap enraged some local media users, uh, social media users, who said he should have stayed further away from the vile animal. Oh god. Alright. I'm watching the video now. Oh god. He's like karateing these guys. Alright. I'm going to read through the rest of the article and I'll play you the video if there's sound. Um, others who have visited the mountain thought it was a fitting payback towards the monkeys who were notorious for ambushing tourists for their food. The scrap began when Mr. G tried to pet one of the macaques. <laughs> in the video, as he touches the monkey, it attacks him and he counters with a jab, leaning over the railing to deliver more blows. While his back is turned, another macaque r rushes in to defend his pal and Mr. G drives it off with a flurry of air punches. Tourists watched on in apparent disbelief while filming the strange martial arts bout and later shared the images on social media. A few days later, Mr. Xi also posted footage of the scrap in Doyun, TikTok's Chinese counterpart, in response to an online attention. He said that he practices free fighting, so when the monkey sneaked into a punch, <laughs> he swung back as a reflex. He said, Of course I held back, they are protected animals, I have to let them go, I just wanted to scare them off. Certainly this kind of behaviour is definitely wrong, so please don't imitate it. Officials appealed to the public to keep their distance from the monkeys. Doyin uh, user Baba wrote, After all these years, someone finally stood up to the monkeys. Another user posted, He has done things that countless people would do, but would not dare. I will find the video for you and try to play it. Uh, let's see if it has sound. Let's see if you can hear this. Alright, loading. Oh. <laughs> He's got moves. Oh, there's another view. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's really into it. Damn. God. This guy went nuts. He went ham on these macaques. Wow. Macaque attack. Macaque attack. Okay, our next story. Moving right along. A 94-year-old woman in Toronto uh, on morning walk withstands a monster raccoon attack. Wow, this is from uh, CB, uh, CBC News in Canada, I believe. Okay, uh, the raccoon was captured and later test negative for rabies. Let's read this story. Not much can stop 95-year-old Mirajoy Klelner from getting outside for her morning walk. Not even a savage raccoon attack. On January 31st, Kellner contemplated staying in due to cold weather, but she's committed to getting in her 7,000 steps a day. So, she bundled up, grabbed her walking sticks, and headed towards Tattle Creek Park in Toronto's Annex neighborhood. She was about halfway through the park when a raccoon ran up to her, attached itself to her left leg, and began viciously biting her. I was stunned. I really didn't even know what kind of animal it was, Kellner told CBC Toronto this morning while sitting in a bench in the park. I should have attacked it with my sticks, but I was so st stunned that I didn't think that and it kept biting me. A man came up from behind her and forcibly removed the animal from her leg, she said. By that time, a small crowd had gathered. Nearby resident Sarah Potts saw the raccoon as she was walking to work. After noticing it didn't look well, she kept her eye on it when Kellner was passing. The raccoon approaches Kellner, and I thought, uh-oh, she told CBC. Then it gets up on its haunches, and it bites her. 
Pod said the raccoon went completely feral, running onto the road and biting nearby cars. I felt so bad for him. I felt bad for Kellner, Pot said. I don't know if you can hear there's some church bells going off. Uh, that, yep, I'll just let that go. Can you hear it? It's delightful. Sunday morning here. Beautiful. Before Kellner was bitten, crossing guard Susan McElroy had already called the city to report the raccoon's strange behavior. Still, she was surprised when she saw a man kick it. I thought, hey, why did he do that, said McElroy. Then I saw it come right back, and that's when I knew Kellner was in trouble. When animal service workers arrived, McElroy said they captured the raccoon and took it away for testing. In the meantime, after much protest, Kellner was taken to emergency department by ambulance. Later, she received a shot of the rabies vaccine in all five of her bite wounds. One was particularly deep. The others weren't too bad, said Kellner. The next day, animal services told her that she would not need further treatment as the raccoon did not test positive for rabies, she said. Since then, Kellner said she's healed quite well. I am grateful I am healthy and am able to withstand these kinds of attacks, she said with a chuckle. I just thought, it's a joke, really. Here I am out for a stroll. This nice little sweet old lady. Suddenly I am attacked by this monster. It's such a bizarre story. There you go. Well, that's a nice one. Let's look at our next story from the New York Post. This is a less fun one, guys. This is a sad one. Woman's nose ripped off by boyfriend's dog startled by her teeth whitening. A Connecticut artist had her nose bitten off by her boyfriend's pitbull mix rescue when the pooch got spooked by her teeth whitening device. Just a little side note for whoever wrote this article. You can't start the sentence with nose was bitten off and then call the animal a pooch. I don't think you can. It's like calling it a little puppy. Olivia Quast, 30, from Thomaston, suffered horrific injuries to her face and arm in the February 3rd incident involving her boyfriend Graham Stashigan's six-year-old dog Bentley, which she's had for four years. Quast recalled in an interview with Kennedy News and Media, reported by The Independent, that she wasn't, that she, sorry, that she touched her face and was shocked that her nose wasn't there. Quast said the dog then continued attacking her, leaving her left arm mangled before she could fight the animal off and call for help. Quast speculated that Bentley, who was abused as a puppy, might have been startled and provoked by her teeth, pardon me, by her teeth uh, whitening mouth guard equipped with a UV light. In separate, in a separate interview, the woman said the dog's eyes changed and described the animal as disassociated. The artist said of herself that she used to be a cat person who never liked dogs until she moved in with her 44-year-old boyfriend and his pointer pit bull uh, bulldog mix, which became the first dog she ever loved. Quast stressed that she had a good relationship with Bentley and would snuggle with a pooch in her bed, so when the canine attacked her last month, it came as a total shock. He lunged. He got my nose first. I was in shock and disbelief, the woman recalled. I just stared at him. I, it never dawned on me that he was going to keep attacking me, because why would he? I put my hand on my nose, and he lunged at my arm twice. Jesus, some pretty horrific photos. Quest said she made a conscious decision to, not, to try to not yank her arm out of the dog's jaws, because she knew that Bentley's favorite game was tug-of-war, so she let the pet bite her until she kicked it in the side, causing Bentley to scamper off. Quest then made a frantic phone call to her mother. I was in pure agony. I was saying, Mom, help me, help me. He took my nose. My fingers are going numb. I can't feel my fingers. I'm getting cold, she recalled saying. It was terrifying. Um, the woman then raced to the bathroom and looked at herself in the mirror to survey the damage from the attack. 
I stayed standing, but I felt my entire being drop to the floor. The room spun. It's like everything was hyper-focused and spinning, and it was pure agony, Quast said. Quast said. The victim was taken by ambulance to Hartford Hospital, where doctors found her nose, septum, and cartilage had been ripped off, but the bridge of her nose and nostrils remained intact. The physical injuries did not impact her breathing or her sense of smell. Quast's left arm was also badly in injured, requiring surgery to install two plates, eight screws, and two pins to hold the limb together. The mauling additionally caused damage to the nerves and ligaments in the woman's hand, which will take up to a year to heal. The 30-year-old is now waiting on her facial injuries to fully heal before undergoing reconstructive surgery to create a new nose from cartilage from her ear, pieces of her ribs, and skin from her forehead. Quast's condition is further complicated by the fact that she suffers from Elnis-Dalnos syndrome, a rare connective tissue disorder that she was diagnosed with at six months old, which makes her susceptible to bruises and injuries. As a result, the woman dislocates her joints on a daily basis, has received stitches more than 80 times, and lives with chronic pain. In the wake of the brutal dog attack, Quast and her boyfriend had Bentley humanely euthanized after treating the dog to a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich and letting it play with stuffed animals while listening to classical music. Quast's best friend has launched a GoFundMe campaign to help donate help the woman with her medical uh, expenses. The fundraiser has drawn more than 66,000 donations so far. In a YouTube video posted on the platform on March 1st, Quast, with a bandage covering the remains of her nose, expressed her gratitude to the donors and well wishes, saying, I'm grateful that I'm okay. Wow. Yeah, geez, that's a that's a pretty heavy story. Uh, I recommend I will leave the links to these stories in the caption of this wherever you're looking at this episode. Um, there is uh, some photos of this woman. I've got to say she was she's I mean she's still quite pretty. Um, but yeah, like the injuries have obviously left her quite scarred. She's uh yeah she was very uh, pretty before the attack. Um, and hopefully the the facial surgery is uh, successful and she feels better soon. Yeah. Okay, guys, that is it for our scratch of the day. We're gonna move on now to another segment that I really like talking about. It's our Beastly Biography. On our Beastly Biography today, we are talking about the Chinese alligator. We've talked about the American alligator to extent on this uh, podcast before, but the Chinese alligator has avoided our spotlight so far, so here we go. The Chinese alligator, also known as the Yangtze alligator, the China alligator, or historically the Muddy Dragon, is a crocodilian endemic to China. It and the American alligator are the only living species of the genus alligator of the family Alligatoridae. Dark grey or black in colour, with a fully armoured body, it brumates in burrows in uh, the winter and is nocturnal in summer. Mating occurs in early summer, with females most commonly producing 20 to 30 eggs, which are smaller than those of any other crocodilian. The species is an opportunistic feeder, primarily eating fish and invertebrates. A vocal species, adults bellow during mating season, and young vocalize to communicate with their parents and to other juveniles. Captive specimens have reached ages of up to 70, and wild specimens can live to over 50 years old. Living in bodies of fresh water, the Chinese alligator's range is restricted to six regions of the province Anhui, and is well and as well as possibly provinces of Jiangsu and Zhejiang. Originally living as far away from its current range as Japan, the species previously had a wide range in distribution, but beginning in 5000 BC, multiple threats such as habitat destruction caused the species' population and range to decline. The population in the wild was about 1,000 in 1970, decreased to below 130 in 2001, and grew after 2003 with its population being about 300 as of 2017. 
listed as critically endangered by the International Union for Conservation of Nature, multiple conservation actions have been taking place for this species. The Chinese alligator has been a part of Chinese literature since the 3rd century. In the late 1200s, Marco Polo became the first person outside of China to write about it. In some writings, the Chinese alligator has been associated with the Chinese dragon. Many pieces of evidence suggest that the Chinese alligator was an inspiration for the Chinese dragon. So the, uh, the Chinese alligator has currently a population size of about 10,000 uh, individuals. Its lifespan can be between 50 to 70 years depending on where it is kept, in captivity or in the wild. Its length it averages about 1.4 meters but can reach lengths of 2 meters and weighs approximately 40 kilograms. Its top speed in the water is 17 to 32 kilometers per hour and its, uh, its country is China. So the Chinese alligator's diet, it is a carnivorous predator. Adults mostly eat fish, snails, and clams, as well as water birds and small mammals, and sometimes turtles. Younger alligators eat small invertebrates such as insects. So it's man-eater status. I have put this animal as a low threat to humans. It is a nocturnal animal through the summer, feeding at night and sheltering in the daytime to avoid both humans and the summer heat. This behavior gives it the ability to live in areas where humans are common. It is a docile species and generally does not intentionally hurt humans. Here are some fun facts about the Chinese alligator. The gender of a Chinese alligator is determined by the nest's temperature during incubation. Temperatures lower than 28 degrees Celsius will result in female or temperatures above 33 degrees Celsius produce males. An even number of males and females come from a nest that is kept at 31 degrees Celsius. Yo Lang, or To, is the name given locally to the species, meaning dragon. Some writers believe that the legendary Chinese dragon was, in fact, the Chinese alligator. Alligator comes from the Spanish el elgato, meaning the lizard. Now, there are just two species or two types of alligators, the Chinese alligator and the American alligator. They are different sizes, and the Chinese alligator has a more tapered and slightly upturned snout, as well as bony plates on each of its upper eyelids. The alligator's bite is one of the most strongest jaws in the world, but the muscles that open its jaws are quite weak. A pair of human hands or a piece of duct tape can hold the mouth closed. There you go. Just a quick little beastly biography there on the Chinese alligator. We're going to push along now. We're going to finish our episode with a little bit of Nan Eaters trivia. Wonderful. So last week on the episode with Carl, I asked you to finish the famous phrase as it relates to bear attacks. If it's brown, lay down. If it's black, fight back. If it's white, A, try and be bright. B, say goodnight. C, prepare to fight. D, all right, all right, all right. So, Carl on the episode guest B, say goodnight, and when I put this on the Instagram, uh, the majority of you also said say goodnight, and I am pleased to announce that you are correct. The correct phrase is, if it's brown, lay down, if it's black, fight back, if it's white, say goodnight. The meaning of this phrase means if it's a brown bear, uh, lay down, and try to get into your fetal position, uh, it'll scratch the shit out of you, but you might survive. If it's black, fight back, it is likely going to be able to scare it off. If it is white, that means it's a polar bear, and it is very unlikely that you are going to be able to survive this encounter in any way. Uh, you cannot run, it will chase you down, it is faster than you, you cannot fight, it is too strong for you, it will kill you. So this phrase basically just means you're going to die. Sorry, say goodnight. Now I have heard that with polar bear attacks, the, the they do encourage you to fight back now. Um, because if you're going to die anyway, you might as well fight back. There's no point just standing there and letting it happen. So it really should be if it's white, fucking do your best to fight. I think that should be the real thing. But currently as it stands, say goodnight is the correct answer. Yes. Okay, this week's question. 
Nearly all wild lions live in Africa, but one small population exists elsewhere. Where? A. China. B. Russia. C. Indonesia. Or D. India. I'll read that again for you. Nearly all wild lions live in Africa, but one small population exists elsewhere. Where does that population live? China, Russia, Indonesia, or India? Go ahead and make your guesses. And if you follow us on Instagram, you can vote in the quiz and in the poll that I put up in the story there as well. Uh, I will let you know the answer to that question next week, as well as celebrating our 50th episode. Can you believe it? We're up. We did 50 episodes almost. Um... I'm very excited for next week's episode, guys. We are going to be talking about The Tiger of Chalgar, another amazing story from Jim Corbett and his book, The Man-Eaters of Kumoan. Very excited. A lot of research going into this one. Um, I anticipate the episode will be out next week, but there is a lot of research going on, so it may be a little bit late, depending on how much uh, free time I get this week to to write this script. Uh, but that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, you can uh, support this show on our Patreon. Uh, you can follow us on all the social media links. Send me uh, emails, whatever you want. Say hello. Uh, suggestions on how to improve the show. Animals you'd like us to cover. Many to stories you'd like us to cover. Many to movies you want me to cover. Killer cryptids. We haven't done one of those in a while. I think that'll be coming up soon. So yeah, please uh, get in touch with me and let me know your thoughts. I really appreciate when that happens. Uh, special shout out to our Patreon patrons, uh, especially Dawn, who is a, I believe, a crocodile tier patron, uh, who is amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Quickly going to plug, um, last week, Carl Gregory from Songs We Share um, was on uh, the show, and this week I will be going on his show, his live radio show, Songs We Share. I'm actually recording my episode tomorrow and the, the Monday after, so if you live in Newcastle or in the surrounding areas, you can tune in to listen to that live between 8 and 10 p.m. on Monday, uh, Monday the 20th of March I believe um, yeah on 2 RFM. I think that's 103.7 2 RFM. Uh, or if you live outside and you want to re-listen to it they do upload those episodes as a podcast on 2 RFM's uh, website so you can go and do that as well really looking forward to it looking forward to sharing my musical opinions I don't get to talk about that kind of stuff very often uh, but yeah really keen for that really super duper keen for tomorrow uh, next week's episode guys the episode 50 the big 5-0 can you believe it halfway to 100 Whoa, wacky dacky dow. Okay, guys, have a fantastic week. Stay safe out there because as we have learned from today's episode, it's a jungle out there.